Welcome to Ethereal Underground. I'm your host, TNT, and this is episode 27. Well, I have a, another special guest, a good friend of mine. I'd say a digital friend of mine. We've never met in person, but I feel like I've known him for years. And like I asked all the other guests, he'll give us general information, background, where he grew up, what generation is he, a little bit maybe about his family. And we'll get into his observations, where he is now in life, what led him uh, to his thinking process, his actual uh, physical location, which is interesting because he took a bold step. I'll let him tell you and moved, which takes you know, a lot of guts to do that. In fact, the whole family was involved in that decision. But his perspective, uh, he has a lot of uh, maturity and a lot of wisdom. And the, the guests that I picked are, are friends of mine, and they have different perspectives. And I was happy that he wanted to be uh, on the show. A lot of people are gun shy, nervous about interviews, but Marco isn't. And uh, this episode will be very interesting to get his take. I never get tired of listening and Speaking with Marco, he adds a lot to the Discord group. And with that being said, uh, we'll let uh, Marco introduce himself to the Ethereal Underground audience. Marco, how are you doing? And I'll let you give us what, whatever you feel comfortable with, with next minute or two, giving an introduction, a little background so we can get to know who you are. Uh, yeah, sure, Jet. Um, before I get into that, well, let me just say that um, Jet and I wanted to get into an interview quite a long time ago, uh, but the issue for me was you know, I was so busy, as he's mentioned, uh, I went through a lot, rather large move, and part of that move was um, selling a piece of real estate while I was not in the country, which was unbelievably stressful because uh, I didn't really have control of going what was going on back home. Um, and so uh, that came to a conclusion. Everything went well. We sold our house before the market uh, started falling apart. In other words, before the interest rates started going up. And uh, subsequent to that, I have moved, physically moved most of my money out of the country, which also makes me feel pretty good as well. So uh, that's kind of changed my state of mind, uh, given me a little bit more <clears throat> relaxation. Uh, I'm known as a somewhat high energy person. Uh, you'll never find me for lack of <laughs> lack of any kind of speech. So, so uh, that's a little bit of background on on uh, why it's kind of taken us a while to get to this interview. Um, so, the first thing I should mention is uh, <clears throat> I'm a baby boomer. I was born actually in the 50s, middle 50s, actually 55. So, as you can guess from that, I am now 67 years old. So, when Jet says I bring maturity to it, he means I'm old. And uh, <laughs> And, uh, but I don't look old and I don't feel old. I'm one of those people, you probably know some of them yourselves, uh, that has just been blessed with good health all my life. I rarely ever get sick of anything other than governments. Um, <laughs> but I don't, I don't suffer from any physical malady. Uh, I have um, uh, a young son. Um, but first, a little bit more about me and my background, where I, where I grew up. I grew up on the West Coast of Canada. So uh, I am technically a Canuck to the American audience out there. And um, 
the world uh, has changed quite a bit since I grew up. There was four children in my family. Uh, we um, had a home. Uh, life was very good. I had a very good childhood. Um, we um, did uh, lots of outdoor activities. As a matter of fact, I was telling Jet that in the summertime, by the time I was five or six years old, my father would take all of us uh, camping uh, for two months uh, the summer. So the last day of school, we'd pack up and head up and we spent the whole time in the summer on the beach running around. Uh, when we were young, you know, three, four years old, we were naked, of course, which wasn't a bad thing back then. And, uh, and we did that until I was like 17 years old. So um, we had a really good childhood. I have um, uh, two brothers and one sister. Uh, my parents are both deceased. My dad passed away a couple of years ago at uh, 97. Oh, wow. Uh, he, yeah, he apologized. It was, you know, he was at home um, and stayed in his home till uh, two weeks before he passed away. And technically, it was only about five, six days. And when my sister and I went to visit him in the hospital in the last couple of days, he was apologizing to us for not making his 97th birthday which was two weeks away. And I, and we said, you know, dad, it's okay. You know, if you're, you're tired and you want to go to sleep, go ahead, man. So he was a great guy. My mom preceded or predeceased him by about 10 years. Uh, and unfortunately, both of my brothers have passed away as well. Uh, both at young ages, unfortunately, both from smoking. Um, so I'm a, as you can imagine, I'm a, a staunch anti-smoke kind of guy. Um, so it's, that, it's just you and your sister that left yeah, in the family. Yeah. Me and my baby sister. So uh, where, where were you, where were you then? Uh, were you in the middle or were you the oldest? Yeah, boy? Uh, I had my, my brother was seven years older. Uh, then I had my, then, then there was myself. And then my younger brother was five years younger and my baby sister is eight years younger. Right. So, Got it. okay. And coincidentally, my baby sister is the same age as my, uh, my wife. Um, which is kind of a funny story because when I was going to university, um, I used to give my friends a really bad time about going out with high school girls when they were, you know, going to university. And here I ended up marrying someone who was eight years younger than me. So, so when <laughs> I was 20, she would have been, uh, yeah, 12. Right. So that really puts me in bad light actually. But, um, but anyway, so I uh, went to school there, had a good uh, time in school, uh, went to university, um, didn't finish my degree because uh, I really didn't like, what was going on in the universities at the time. Uh, I know fully now, being an older person and seeing the history of it, what happened, what, but that, if you remember, uh, that's the year 1971 uh, and 73, and that's when Limits to Growth was written and introduced into the universities. And um, when I saw that and read it, I thought, this is craziness. This doesn't make any sense to me, right? And, and of course, as time's gone by, We've all realized that uh, who was behind all of that and, and the, the lies that were told and the excuses that were given that, that something in a textbook, of course, had to be true, right? Right. So I, yeah. had, a, I had a lot of questions, yeah, about uh, what was going on university. So I ended up uh, going out of university um, and pursuing a different career, basically. What, um, what career did you end up when, when you left the well, university? I, what I, uh, you they, and I yeah. don't know if you've had several careers, but could you walk us through, like, yeah. were you 20, 21, 22 when you left the university? And if so, what did you start doing for a living? Well, basically, uh, when I left, um, 
I was very interested, well, I'm actually interested in all sciences, uh, which is why, why it kind of broke my heart to leave. But I just, I couldn't, couldn't uh, wrap my head around what I was being told. And so what I did was I left and got involved in electronics because electronics was a, a, a huge passion of mine. I'd been working with electronics and computing uh, since punch cards, because when I was in high school, that's when punch cards were out and people were actually being hired as punch card operators, which is something that most people, your audience couldn't comprehend, but basically they set it up giant typewriter and they do entry in type uh, punch cards to go into a computer. And uh, they would sit there and do these translations and the punch cards would be fed into the, like an IBM 360 computer, which yep. is the size of a small basement with big reels of tape on it and stuff. My sister yeah. worked with the IBM 360 in the punch yeah, card. Yeah. So I was a kid was, and I remember her. Yeah. Yeah, there was that. And the one that was at our university was a, a VAX PDP-11, which is the other popular big uh, uh, sort of mini mainframe at the time kind of thing. So so I've been involved in computers and electronics, you know, right from the beginning, almost the beginning of semiconductors, basically, because semiconductors were only really invented, truthfully, in the 50s. Uh, you know, the first computers were tube and univac. So I did a lot of work with tubes, did a lot of work with electronics, and I ended up designing a line of electronics myself, audio electronics. And um, we went to a consumer electronics show, I think it was 2003, and we won best sound of show. We combined our electronics with a pair of speakers from a fellow uh, who I won't mention because he just passed away a little while ago, and I don't want to get him involved. But Basically, we had a huge display worth $100,000 at the time, which was just ridiculous for a display at Consumer Electronics Audio. And um, so we were going to launch this line of electronics, but I had a falling out with my partner. And so we ended up going separate ways. And it, it, it one more time left a horrible taste in my mouth for what people could do and how things could be twisted in particular in terms of law, what, what lies could be told in a courtroom and stuff. So we, yeah. we split up, it left a bad taste in my mouth, but at the same time, being involved in computer and electronics, uh, I knew someone and was introduced to someone who wanted work done on their computers at night. They had an investment firm and uh, they closed their uh, investment firm at night and they wanted their software upgraded. They wanted their terminals uh, maintained and stuff. So I took on that and and maintained several uh, office buildings for the government and several other uh, companies. And um, while doing that, I happened to meet a guy who was the head of an investment firm and he invited me to come and work for his investment firm. And so then I started off uh, in investments, believe it or not. And this is 1996 at the time. So um, I spent a while doing that several years and got involved in uh, offshore trusts in the Cayman Islands and stuff. So- Okay, um, hold, hold up, Marco. Yeah. Just real quick. So when you went to work for this investment banking firm, you, yeah. you're not referencing working on their computers and updating software. You, do you mean you became more like a trader? Yeah, a, that's a right. Broker? Yeah. Oh, okay. So I, I, yeah, basically because, um, I kind of have a, a you know, gregarious personality and I make a fairly good salesperson and uh, I can quickly grasp almost anything in terms of electronics and also trading and, and uh, shares and things like that. I used to be able to do most of that in my head. I could stand there and tell you what percentage something's going up and down as I'm watching it. And my boss used to say to me, Oh, you're crazy. Right. And he'd pull out his calculator and check it. And I was, I was always right. 
So um, I just had a head for doing that kind of stuff. So he he just wanted me working for him and and I could serve sort of a double token because not only could I do the investment part of it, but I could also make sure all the offices were working and all the staff were up to date and that kind of stuff, right? So okay. So it was quite a quite a good opportunity. So um, now, do you want me to continue on or do you have another question for me? Of no, that's that's fine. Keep going. So this is 1996, yeah, uh, thereabouts. Yeah. And, yeah. and then how long were you in this line of work? Now, now you'll love this story. This, this, <laughs> I've had kind of a wild life. So, so here I am, I'm working in and looking at investments and we're monitoring all this stuff. And um, there was some pretty crazy stuff happening in the market. Um, we were heading, of course, for the year 2000 and the tech wreck and all the stuff going on with NASDAQ going from 5,800 down to 1,500. But so I'm, I'm dealing with that. I'm dealing with clients and we're looking at portfolios and we're trying to wean down the clients because in an investment firm like this, all the agents are paid a percentage on top of uh, the money under management, right? So if you make 1% on $20 million, right, you make a fairly large amount of money. So the idea was to reduce the number of agents in the agency, but increase the number of, uh, of dollars under management. And so we got right. it down to, to the managing partner and, and his other partner and myself. So we were managing you know, many, many millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars. And there was three of us involved. And so this was, this was great because you, you woke up in the morning and you made money by doing nothing, basically, like sending out birthday cards to people and looking at their portfolio. And so uh, I found out an awful lot about the investment industry uh, during that time. And basically, a lot of it has been reflected in the, in the movies that we've seen over the years, like uh, Wolf of Wall Street. Uh, there's more truth to that than there is fiction. Because um, we're, we're talking incredibly large amounts of money. And, and from there, these two guys and myself got involved in offshore trusts. But what it turned out to be was a gigantic uh, worldwide fraud. And so what eventually happened was, um, well, like I, I had already stepped away from the firm because I looked at these, these offshore trusts in which they were giving massive seminars down in places like Cancun, Mexico. And they would bring in, you know, like 2,500, 3,000 people, everybody paying $10,000 to be there. So you can imagine the amount of money just generated in ticket sales. And um, they would in, have a group of speakers and we had speakers like David Icke. You know, if you think of David Icke back in 1996 and 97. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, this was all new stuff. And I met um, um, uh, the guy who wrote uh, The Creature from Jekyll Island. Um, he was there. Um, all of these big players, conspiracy people were there. And so with all of this talk of conspiracy theories, everyone wanted to do an offshore uh, trust to hide their funds. Not hide their funds, but reduce their tax exposure, basically, under a legal premise. So what it turned out was that after a couple of years of this thing running, and I'd actually left the firm at that point because I'd been given a, a, an even better offer to work somewhere else, where they found out that this was erroneous and uh, there were huge tax consequences from the IRS and also from uh, CRA in Canada. Uh, I won't go into the details of it, but it's, it's a, it was a very convoluted, very intelligent uh, fraud process. 
And uh, eventually the US government shut it down. They basically raided the bank, I think in the Cayman Islands and seized all the funds. And then the IRS and CRA came after everybody. So, so I'd already walked away. Okay, so you, uh, so you, you were almost a Canadian version of Bernie Madoff. <laughs> uh, yeah, kind I, of, not, kind not of. quite that kind of money, but yeah, I, basically, yeah, funny. that's that, that's the road these guys were going, uh, Jet. And um, between huh. you and I, um, they lost every dime that they ever made. Uh, basically, the government came and and just took their funds away. And uh, not only did they take their funds away. Uh, they told them uh, and made them sign disclosures saying that if they ever are proven wrong in court, in other words, if the government's ever proven wrong, they can't sue them. Well, I don't know about you, but that sounds kind of illegal to me that they could do something like that, right? Because if they're found wrong in court, they should pay them back, right? So anyway, this is all going on. I'm not actually anywhere near there. And I could tell you lots of stories about me confronting those guys and what's going on with them and stuff. In the meantime, I was offered a position to go overseas to Southeast Asia to distribute medical supplies. And medicals, what I mean by medical supplies is HIV test kits, which were all the rage at that time because HIV had taken over the world, right? And uh, our good buddy who's famous now, Anthony Fauci was, was head of all that, right? So you can yeah, see- you mean, I, uh, you mean doing people in with AZT? <laughs> well, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's it. let's give them that great drug kind of thing, right? But, but right. So you can see that I've lived long enough and I've done enough things and been through many, so many different things in, uh, in um, history that it all seems quite real to me. In other words, I've actually lived all these things. When they talk about Anthony Fauci being involved in HIV and stuff, I remember all that, right? It, it, it's like, it's yes. not like uh, something out of a textbook for me. It's, it's real life. So, um, so it, uh, it was fascinating to, to be involved in that. And uh, and see see all that come to fruition and stuff. And then now, you know, 20 years later, 30 years later, looking back and and understanding more of the history that, that went on with all these events kind of thing. So having lived the history, it, it makes it much more real for me. Whereas other people read it, you know, they say, well, this is like a conspiracy theory and this is a conspiracy theory. And it's not. All those things actually happened. He was responsible for all those those things happening. And I remember going over to Southeast Asia and uh, we were you know, producing these test kits for just ridiculously low amounts of money. And so I approached several governments about it. And that's when I found out about uh, huge government corruption, about what kind of payoffs these guys wanted to do business, number yeah. one. And number, number two, more importantly, they didn't give uh, you know, two hockey sticks about their, their citizens. They, 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 they had no compunction about lying you know cheating stealing it was all about payoffs and bribes um if, if you wanted to do business with someone you had to send them on a holiday to uh, las vegas and uh, you know buy them a new car and and uh, a couple of weeks with the uh, hookers kind of thing i mean literally uh, you know that that's literally the way this business is done well that's so, uh let, let me tell you to kind of parallel that the technology that i've worked on for many years, the bipolar ion cluster generation, which is very effective in air and surface pathogens, contaminants. Uh, we, when I got to the highest level in, in government, US government and 
overseas. That's absolutely correct because when you have deals with nations involved or opening, entering new markets, there are uh, lobbyists and go-to people. And we were looking at just to enter a particular country in Europe or Asia, it was around between 260 and three hundred ten thousand uh, yeah. dollars, which which was a uh, money up front before the connections were made, uh, phone calls and then appointments and then flying out with visas and so forth and then conducting the meetings and then there's all the palms that you have to grease from that point forward, and it doesn't stop until all the way when. Uh, governments uh, either have a certain type of mandate or rebates or legislation where the product is named and then uh, required maybe uh, depending on what level you go you you pay as you go so it could be it could be five to ten million dollars to get your product, in a country, either on product shelves at the retail level or uh, legislative, as far as building codes or in the medical, and I'm like, man, this is this is insane. You have to you you have to have a lot of money to play this game, but it's all, I would say, it's uh, kickbacks or um, it's not bribing, but it's like it's kickbacks, it, it's fees. It's uh, issuance permits. It's it's really it's really bizarre. But what it is, it's it's everyone that takes a, a cut of the profit as you go up. You, you yeah. can't go yeah. from one level to the next without having some type of reward or compensation or rebate. Yeah, and that's that's how the world does business. And I'm like, no, I'm out of here. I, yeah, at the highest I mean, level, I said, no, I'm, I'm not doing this. And I, I'm not, no way am I going to mention names because I want to be able to go home at night. But uh, yeah. if I if I said who they were, you would know uh, who yeah, these yeah. political figures are. And it's like, I I, I saw the handwriting on the wall and I go, oh, this isn't going to go well. I, I know to play that game or what it takes and I'm not willing to do it. So I knew I was going to take a hit as far as my technology and my finances and but but go ahead with your story. I can relate to what what you said there about. Yeah, your... you know it's it's um you know so you're you're going so think of me. I'm I'm going along on this path in life, and every corner I turn, I hit corruption, graft, lies, and it's it's beginning to really jade me in terms of humanity and in terms of especially big business because you know. Uh, I don't know that I really had a problem like uh, dealing with, with monies and, and kickbacks or, you know, greasing the skids per se, because like what I found was in Asia, everyone was very upfront about it. It wasn't like this is a hidden thing, you know, like not like the big guy kind of thing. Right. We're, we're talking more, you know, uh, okay. So we're going to do business. You know, you're talking to someone in Vietnam and they're, you know, importing heavy equipment or something. And they say, well, yeah, I, I, I want uh, this and that. And yeah, two weeks in Las Vegas and, you know, hot and cold running hookers and, and that kind of stuff. Right. And and so, you know, you you know what that's going to cost. Um, and so you 
enter that into the, you know, you don't have it physically written in the contract, but basically everything is done word of mouth. There are no lawyers involved in any of this, right? You talk mm -hmm. to the guy, you go to, typically you just go to lunch with someone and if they like you, they do business with you. Like, and they know everyone in your family. Like it's a family thing. It's, it's quite, in some ways it's really good. Right. And then, you know, um, so you get used to doing that kind of stuff and, and it is a cost of doing business. And as you say, you're greasing skids on every level and there's always someone between you and the next deal between you and the next level, as you say. Right. Right. And that, you know, that's, it can be bad. It can be good. I under, I, you know, people want to make money. People make a living. They all have families and stuff. They're not hurting anyone in this thing. They're basically just making themselves out as middlemen, you know, no, no more than, going to a real estate agent and they act between you and the client kind of thing as a buffer. And that's what a lot of these people are doing. Yep. So a lot of it I didn't really have a problem with, but what I did have a problem with was people and politicians uh, in North America where they pretended to be so clean that none of this could ever exist. We never do things like that. And then as we know, you and I know after living so long, we, we've now seen what goes on behind closed doors. So what they're dealing with is just something else even more horrific but they're lying about the whole thing and not being upfront and they could care less about your family. And so, yeah, there, there's a, almost a kind of a charm in dealing with, with um, some of Asian countries and stuff and the way things are done now dealing with other countries, which I won't name, but we know who they are. Uh, yeah. You're dealing with a regime and that regime is not nice. And uh, you do not want to play with those people because as you say, uh, you won't be waking up the next day and your family and your dog and, you know, your cousin and your mate, everybody will be gone. Right. So, so mm -hmm. all of that together just gave me an incredibly bad taste for humanity and especially a bad taste for doing business on a large scale. So I, uh, uh, one other point that uh, I would, I would tend to agree with you as far as the uh, each level and, needing compensation because they're maybe acting like a broker. So everyone gets compensated to get your product into these new markets. And, but there was a couple cases where at a higher level, they wanted a relative of theirs to be put on your payroll yeah. in your company. And that's when I said, Oh no, no, this, I'm out of here. Yeah. And, uh, and, and what's interesting is when you get, when you get to that level, Marco, I don't know if you had, when you get to that level, uh, that's what I was thinking. I'm like, yeah, over my dead, dead body. So you're going to have a nephew or a, a, a daughter or son-in-law, and I'm supposed to give them a six figured income and an office. And then this deal goes through. So I've got this deadbeat on the payroll. You can't fire them. And, and I know, but what happens is when I realize, oh, this is where we're headed. I had to be very strategic how to exit yeah. the talks and how to exit that group uh, in, in such a way to where uh, I, I didn't, I, I'm smart enough. I wouldn't smart be a smart aleck, you know, but I had to be skillful in backtracking and politely declining and then distancing myself, eliminating, you know, phone numbers, not contacting them with emails anymore. Calls would come in. I'd say, ah, it's just not going anywhere. We're having problems with research right now. And just it it took sometimes a year to two years to cool that relationship down and, and distance. Because if it was real harsh or you're in their face, that wouldn't go well either. And I'm like, man, this is 
this world is really messed up, but go ahead. Yeah, it's uh, the analogy I'd give of that is basically you're backing out of the room facing everybody <laughs> slowly. Yeah, and then feeling for the door handle behind your back. Yeah. and uh, Yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. And taking a quick glance to see there's no one standing on the other side of the door. But exactly. Yeah, that's, that's exactly what's right. So all of that just gave me a really bad taste for all this stuff. I mean, you know, I can, you know, name names of political figures in the U.S. and whatever. They're dealing with some of the offshore trust stuff and 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 all these other things. But that doesn't that doesn't serve any purpose because I think, you know, your audience is sophisticated enough. To, and, and certainly history now has shown us what exactly is going on. So nobody's nobody's a child that's listening to this broadcast. They all know what's going on. But having actually being old enough to live some of that stuff and see the history unfolding is just unbelievable. So to make a long story short, all that just made me very, very jaded about humanity in general. So I didn't mention the fact that my dad uh, was a contractor. He was a very honorable person. Uh, he was a, a plumbing contractor, one of the very best in the city. My Both my brothers ended up being the same thing. Uh, you, you never find a person say a bad word about those guys or any of the work they ever did. And so, you know, I, here I am, I swore I'd never do that kind of stuff. And here I am, I was trained as a contractor by those guys, by, by my dad, because we grew up in a family of plumbers with multiple vehicles and, you know, tools and big giant jobs. And I'd be out there, you know, at, at 12 years old, throwing cast iron pipe in a, in a ditch. And my friends are riding by on bicycles, having fun while I'm working. <laughs> So, you know, I, I did lead, uh, live that life of being a contractor. And so uh, I went back to that because there was honor in it, right? Now, there's lots of dishonorable contractors, but at least it's on a small scale. And that doesn't mean you have to be dishonorable. You can be right. a good person. You can do great work. You can do stuff to code. You can be very proud of the workmanship. And that's kind of where I went from there. And um, at the same token, always in the back of my mind, as, as this thing unfolded, I kept thinking to myself of the... The, the kind of the vision I had, I've, I've told you about it before. I think I was eight years old when we had our first television and um, my wor worldview was changed because I saw kids starving in Africa on, on a black and white round tube TV. And I thought to myself, why in the world would they be starving when I've got a house and I've got food and I got a mom and dad and stuff. And that just never sat well with me. And so once I got into the world and you see my story unfold, I knew why that was happening because no one cared about those people, right? And so um, I, uh, I was drawn to faith after that. And uh, when I, I divorced my first wife and uh, married my second wife, and we both wanted to have children. And so we wanted to raise them uh, in the best way we could. So number one, they would never watch television in their formative years. Uh, they would uh, eat properly. They would have supplementation if they needed it. Uh, the only videos they ever saw was um, basically Christian videos uh, or videos about singing. Uh, so we've learned like, all these different Bible uh, scripture by singing it, believe it or not. And um, it just seemed to me to be a better reality. Um, and the more I got into it, the more I enjoyed it. And we raised our children that way. And my children now, the youngest is 18. And um, the... Uh, the other two are in their 20s, basically. So, um, okay, so um, I, uh, <clears throat> so we found that that gave us uh, a great result. Uh, and um, my children, as a consequence, uh, 
are just great kids. Uh, we are, as you know, part of my story was moving out of the country and I don't know if we'll have enough time to get into that today. But basically, yeah, I, I went to, uh, back into contract work, work on homes, doing it really well. Uh, and uh, at the same token, I had this uh, vision or focus of, um, of moving out of the country. So when my wife and I were going to retire, we were going to move out of the country. But because of all the things I'd experienced around the world, I was very afraid that we would head into a situation where, uh, and a mass extermination situation and a, and a situation where the legal system would collapse, the financial system would collapse, because having been ex exposed to all of those things, uh, I knew how precarious all of this stuff was. And I also knew as the years went by that there was an agenda to basically exterminate mankind by a group of people who are driven by bad forces. Um, and so uh, what happened was uh, we basically had a miracle happen. And that was my wife, uh, during the COVID situation, my wife's a nurse. She uh, it was retirement age. So she retired just as COVID was getting going. So she didn't have to spend her time in the, the wards of people that were having issues. And um, basically we put our house up for sale and uh, it did, as I said, in the beginning of the interview, it did eventually sell. We got our money out and we chose to move to South America. And um, I'll tell you a little bit of the reason why. Okay, so we believe there's going to be issues with all these things and obviously they're unfolding and we can all see them happening on a day-to-day -day basis. So um, some of the issues uh, are uh, abated by the fact that the standard of living in Ecuador is lower than the United States, but the cost of living is probably, I don't know, one quarter of the cost of living in the United States. So we, this is the only country in, in uh, South America that's on the American dollar. And because of that, uh, it, uh, it stabilizes the financial system. So other, other currencies in South America, uh, pesos, whatever, depending on the country you're in, are, are all being beaten into the ground, whereas you and I both know the American dollar is going up. So basically, uh, we do better and better every day as the American dollar is going up. And um, the cost of, of, for instance, let's say a, <laughs> a three-bedroom apartment. We live in a three-bedroom apartment right now. Uh, in the middle of a small town. And basically, uh, it's three bedroom, fully furnished, uh, all the water. Uh, there's no heating bills here because the average temperature is 72 and there's no cooling bills because it's not hot enough to have cooling. Um, is $400 a month. Well, compare that to the average rent in the US or the average rent where I came from, which is now $2,700 a month. Yeah, easily. Because Vancouver is an expensive city. It is. It's uh, the... Uh, most the second first or second most expensive in Canada. They just announced the rates for a one bedroom unfurnished apartment in North Van is twenty seven hundred dollars a month. For a wow, one bedroom. one bedroom. Yeah, and then there's three other parts of the city, and the lowest is twenty four hundred. So compare twenty four hundred dollars a month to four hundred dollars a month, fully right. furnished, everything included. Uh, food here, as I've shown you pictures and stuff is mostly organic where I am and it costs nothing. I mean, it's just like our, our food bill for a family of four is like about $1,200 a month. Um, and that's all organic kind of thing, right? 
and eating as good as you can. And if you don't want to, you'd eat at restaurants here all day long because the food in restaurants is nothing as well. A meal here is about uh, four dollars, maybe five. So yeah. So you've got clean water, you've got clean air. They don't spray here, not where I am anyway. Yeah. And um, so there's really no reason not to be here. The other part of it is is that we are also uh, setting up our own homestead. I've right now I'm actually looking at uh, properties now. I can afford properties down here in the range of 60 to 100 hectares, right? So 100 hectares is is uh, 2.5 times uh, acres, right? So 250 acres, right? Mm -hmm. um, so we can afford large properties with clean water, et cetera, et cetera, and set ourselves up with, with a place that already has food growing on it and stuff. So that's basically the reason we moved here. Uh, and the, a series of, of wonderful circumstances have put us in this position, right? So we are very grateful for it. Um, we don't know why, why we would deserve it over somebody else, but I'm not going to argue with it. Uh, we're here and we're, we're doing our thing. But the same token, we're paying back to the community. We're trying to do as much volunteer work as possible uh, in hospice. My wife is a, was a hospice nurse for 35 years. So uh, she's working that and we, uh, they're going to be building a new birthing clinic here and stuff because there's lots of unvaxxed people here. The town I'm living in is about 5,000 people. Um, 1,500 to 2,000 are English speakers, Ringos from all over the world, mostly from U.S., a lot from Europe now because Europe's heading into a bad time this, this right. fall, as you know. So, And you, you, left, you told me when you... Uh, Packed up and left Canada, you and your family, didn't you literally do that transition within days of a cutoff? Yeah. What happened was uh, the Trudeau government announced that October 31st of 2021 was going to be the last time that anyone who was unvaxxed could get on an airplane or a train or a bus, you know, like a bus going across uh, a large region, uh, would happen. So, um, I still needed to do work on my uh, home. And so I thought, well, you know what? I'll send my family off and send them down to Ecuador. So I arranged all the flights, got all that going. And, and over a period of like two months, I was you know, selling our furniture and working with my daughter who's still actually in Canada right now. And so right at the last minute, uh, he changed the date to November 31st. So that meant I could stay another month. But I thought to myself, you know, it's way safer for me to send the rest of my family off because if, if things really got bad, I could always get across the border because I'm just, a, you know, I'd be a single person, right? And the Canadian-American border is not exactly small and it's not particularly, you know, covered in razor wire and stuff. So you can literally just walk across. So I would have walked across and then taken a plane, uh, you know, out of Miami or something like that or Los Angeles because at, at that time, the restrictions weren't that bad, right? Uh, or I could have taken a boat, but the the main point was is it would be better for my family to get out than me. I was willing to sacrifice myself, um, although I wouldn't give up easily, if if as long as I could get my family out. And plus, I could stay home and do some more work for another month on the house and stuff. And like I said, even with all that, we still didn't finish because uh, the weather turned really stormy during that time, and I had some things to do on the outside of the house, and I couldn't do them. We had tarps all over everything, and we just couldn't do it. There's too many storms, so. I left there with the house almost finished. There was still things to do. And luckily I had two really, really wonderful guys, both Christian guys uh, 
employees that, that finished the house for me. I, I didn't, I, you know, I never had to worry a, a single second about them doing anything bad for the house because they're both great guys. And, you know, we could do uh, Zoom meetings like we're doing right now. We could walk through the house and say, hey, we should do this or do that. And so it eventually it got done. And there's more of, the, more of the story of selling the house than that. But that would take me another show just to explain the issues I had with that. You and I discussed that when we first started talking back and forth of uh, some dark forces working against me <laughs> to, to not make that work. But uh, I, I wouldn't give up. And so, yeah, so here we are now. And then, of course, the last part of the equation is, okay, I realized, because one more time, I was in the financial field, how difficult it is to move money around the world, right? And I can give you lots of stories of why Bitcoin is what it is. And people don't actually understand why Bitcoin took off as well as it did. Right. Um, it, has, it has to do with money laundering and, and housing in Vancouver and Chinese officials, or should I say uh, Asian officials uh, coming out of the country and stuff. And that started back in 1986. And that's, like I said, that's a whole program in itself, just talking about what went on there. It's a huge discussion. But the long and short of it is, since I knew how to move money, uh, I decided that I would open up several bank accounts, put money in them. And most places in the world, uh, debit machines and stuff will only give you, when you're out of the country, two or, two or $300 a day, right? Uh, but your limit on your card could be, you know, say 3000 4000 or something. You've got a fairly large amount of money in the account. So what I did was, um, it's a little trick, is I have uh, six different cards and money in each card. So literally, I can pull out, you know, seven, eight, nine thousand $9,000 a day, every day in cash. So, so that's what I've been doing. I've been accumulating cash. So when people say they have cash, they got no idea <laughs> what cash is. We're talking like, uh, remember it, on the, uh, one of the discords, I, I sent a picture of you with a guy sleeping with money all over him and stuff. If you yes, that. that was funny in bed. Yeah. 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 Well, that's kind of literally what, what's going on here right now. Right. That's why I'm not telling you my exact location. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> For obvious reasons, but, but basically that's what I'm sitting at. And I'll tell you what the reasoning behind that is. Uh, generally speaking, when they have a run on a bank, uh, they will close the bank and, and, and turn the machines off so you can't get cash. So people will line up to get cash. The machines won't work for, say, five, 10 days. And after that, they'll reopen the bank and allow you to take, say, $300 out of a month or something like that. And then the same token, what they'll do is they'll take your money, bail it in to bail out the bank, and then basically give you shares in the bank, right? And that's right. exactly what's going to happen. That has happened in Cyprus. It's happened everywhere in the world that this happens. So that's what you can expect. So if you can't get cash, uh, and they're not going to get rid of American cash right away. And I'll tell you one big reason why. Um, and this may sound stupid, but if you think about it, it's absolutely true. Uh, every criminal organization in the world uses American dollar cash. How difficult is it going to be to get rid of all that cash and go full digital in, in, a, in a, like a heartbeat? It's just not going to happen, right? Uh, a lot of the criminals, of course, being, you know, we won't say names of politicians, but certainly they're there. And so, uh, you know, narcos, people like that, they've got, they've got millions of dollars uh, in shrink wrap plastic on the bottom of a bay or in a tanker and stuff. If, if you ever listen to Jim Willie, he'll tell you the same thing. So the American dollar will be the last physical currency to disappear. So that's what I have. And also... Um, I'm living in a country where there's a huge amount of gold here and gold can be purchased um, directly from a mine. You don't have to go through uh, any deal or any broker. So basically 
money once it's cash is is gone. It's disappeared out of the system, right? So you've got anonymity there, and everything in Ecuador is cash. Nobody uses bank machines, right? I mean, you can go to a major major urban center, let's say like Quito or something like that, and you can use a card and stuff. But there's a there's a price to be paid, you know, three or five percent on top. So everything is cash discounted. So everything, every, every mom and pop grocery store uses cash. There's no bank machines anywhere here. So transitioning Ecuador into a credit system or something is just going to be incredibly difficult. So it'll be the, one of the last places to go. And the way things are going right now, I think that South America is going to end up being a BRICS country anyway, because with the amount of gold they've got here um, and the amount of Chinese debt they have, um, they will probably automatically go to BRICS as I think they've got 17 countries lined up right now, including Saudi Arabia and UAE. So kind of the writing's on the wall for that. But anyway, as the American dollar is still worth something, uh, I can use that cash to buy things, property, et cetera, et cetera. I, I've got chain of, of custody of the cash, so there's no issue there. Uh, and also, uh, if there's any issues, I can convert directly to gold and silver from a mine directly. I, I have a friend that actually does that. So so I've got anonymity in that as well. So so this is a, a – I, I don't know um, why I've gotten the education that I've got. But I can tell you that it, it has put me in really good stead in a really good position, uh, not from my planning, but just the way my life has gone from step to step. Um, so um, do you have any questions? Is there anything I can fill in on you? Is there, I have well, I was just going to add, I'm surprised, and you touched on this, that in the United States, for example, the large percentage, over 90%, easily over 90 percent do right. not understand how the economic and banking structure is set up in, in the laws your if you ask someone what's m1 m2 m3 money what the difference is they would have a hard time explaining that but when you mention this is just illustration help the audience follow me if you put two thousand dollars deposited in the banks whether it's a savings account or checking account you are an unsecured creditor so you gave you deposited two thousand dollars to the bank but what you did is you loaned the bank the two thousand dollars now the bank will give you a receipt a deposit receipt showing that transaction took place but if the bank goes under belly up the, there's a, a fairly recent uh, federal law passed that any banks, what gets paid first in a, a default setting is the derivatives. And the last to get paid is the depositors, the mom and pop or Joe's six pack. Yeah. People go, well, there's FDIC insurance because I see the sticker on the, <laughs> the window of the bank and on the door every time I go in. I see FDIC, so I'm I'm insured up to two hundred thousand dollars per account, right? No, no, because that FDIC insurance, I don't know the exact figures, but it's it's a it's two fifty, yeah, two fifty per account, yeah, yeah. But so the FDIC, what the FDIC insurance has in their their holdings, it's it's basically less than seven dollars per hundred. Yeah, that's right. And so what that means is the FDIC insurance, it says that on paper, but they don't have it. So every $100 you deposit, if the bank goes under, the FDIC insurance has less than $7 to, 
to give you. So how are you going to get the other $93? And then the, uh, another problem is that's not cash on hand. The FDIC has that money tied up in bonds and commercial real estate and other programs. Their own derivatives, actually, at this they, point. They, yeah, and they even have uh, derivatives. So yeah. to get that $7 out of the 100 so you can kiss $93 goodbye out of every 100 So to get the $7 would be at least six months or, or more. But the derivatives, what people don't understand is the derivatives are between $4,000 and $6,000 So if you have uh, Deutsche Bank or Credit Suisse and others, and there's websites where you can go to to see what's the derivative exposure of Bank of America, J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs, uh, Wells, I call them Wells Fraudgo, but Wells yeah. Far Fargo. You can see how many trillions and trillions of derivatives these banks are on the hook for what's interesting is if, if all the daisy chain of events all the banks connected when when these big banks start to go under and they fall like dominoes if you which they will a bail-in is a friendly way of saying confiscating your deposits so all the deposits that every human being has on planet earth but let's focus on europe all the european citizens canadian united states or, or extend it to the five eyes. If all the bail-ins, they confiscate every man, woman bank account, it will still only pay less than 1% of the derivatives exposure. So the complexity of how bad the financial system is, it's really hard for people to wrap their mind around just how bad it is and the nuances of, derivatives how they work and how to get to be four between four and six thousand trillion so they call it four or six quadrillion dollars there's not enough wealth there's not enough corporations there's not enough mines you know like lithium gold silver copper mines there's yeah. not enough anything on this planet nothing on this planet even comes close to six thousand trillion dollars of value so this whole thing go when it goes, it, let's say if it goes or when it goes, no one wants to hear this. And I, I don't care because I'm not popular anyway. If, if you talk about the truth, you're never going to be popular and forget being invited anywhere. So I, since I've been popular in decades, I'll go ahead and say it. Ladies and gentlemen, if the global banking system collapses, you know what that means? That means easily 80% death of all human beings on this planet. There's no way around it. We're talking almost a human extinction level event when the banking system collapses. So do your own research, which you won't. So sorry to be mean to the audience, but no one does. Everyone just wants to be entertained. No one I've had I've never had anyone email me or text me that, that has verified what I said or did their own research. So everyone just wants to be entertained with podcasts. But if you ever get got off your rear end and did work. Over 80% of humans will die with a complete economic global collapse. So put that in your pipe and smoke it. That's how serious this is. People don't want to face it. It's too scary. So they'll worry about a ball game or what the Kardashians are doing because that's where they are spiritually. That's where they are psychologically, mentally. And death is coming. The only ones that will survive are the ones that are spiritually connected the ones that have done the homework, the ones that see 
the world for what it really is, ones that are sober and have looked for strategies to navigate with the trouble coming ahead and have clarity, especially spiritually. You and I talk about that all the time on Discord. Uh, what life's all about while we're here. Is there a God? Is there a higher source? Which you, you and I agree upon. We have lengthy discussions. How do you develop that relationship? Uh, is there a hope that if you were to die one way or, or another, old age or a natural disaster, or you fell off a, a ladder and succumbed to injuries, whatever it might be, is there a hope after death? All these things, that's the more important things to focus on. But I think everyone is just focused on plastic and leather, living from day to day, watching TV, wanting to be entertained. The, I'm not Mr. Negative, and we'll wait and see. And the problem is when this comes out, I won't be able to talk to anyone, say I told you so. Not that I'd waste the energy to do that anyway. But time will tell if I'm full of crap or if what I'm saying is actually absolutely true and the other guests these conversations we have time will tell we'll see if i'm still around i'll be like yep yep just just as predicted this is the insight the clarity you have especially if you're spiritually advanced a lot of people aren't going to make it in this human experience that's just the facts so i never try to wake people up you can't wake people up anyway people need to wake themselves up i never try to wake anyone up i i don't know why people say that um but uh, those that are aware and are spiritually mature, I think they know what's coming and they're better prepared to handle what's right around the corner. And the events have already started. There were shots across the bowel in the 2007-2008 crisis. But September 17th of 2019, if you don't know what happened, September 17th, 2019, that's a sign that you're already in serious trouble. The fact that you don't know what happened on that date, and I don't know what to tell you. Um, I, I feel sorry for you. But September 17th, 2019 shows that this horrific event with easily an 80% death toll was initiated. And there's no stopping this global economic uh, uh, collapse. And uh, with that bright and, and cheerful news, and everyone's tuned off the podcast by now, what are your thoughts on that, Marco? Yeah, uh, you know, <clears> that <throat> you know that that's why I'm here now. I, I should mention the fact that um, it's not a random choice. There's a group of people here, and I'm sure there's groups of people all over the world that have uh, joined together uh, for like-minded reasons. Now, some of those could be yeah, just physical survival reasons and stuff, which is part of the reason I am here. Uh, but uh, another as you said, part of it is a, a spiritual uh, reason as well. Now, there's lots of different uh, ideas, spiritual ideas, but it's interesting, you know, uh, the more I've delved into this and you as well, uh, there's a huge amount of science behind this uh, that we've never been told, never been exposed to, and, it, and, and it's been hidden from us. And the more that I talk to you and listen to what you have to say and, and uh, just understand that uh you know part of me is, is definitely a scientist always has been uh very inquisitive i've never stopped reading i just read 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 and read uh you just cannot stop me from learning new things because that's just what i love to do and i guess that's maybe why i'm here and and gone through the experiences i have but the spiritual part of it is definitely the most important 
part because physicality, I mean, we're all going to pass away eventually, regardless of whether this was happening or not. So you, you have to right. come to a realization of like, who you, like, who are you? Like, why are you here? Are you here, you know, just to collect a bunch of junk? I mean, being the fact that I was involved in finances, we had a lot of clients that were elderly and I can tell you not one of them on their deathbed actually wanted to see their Ferrari again and missed, missed, you know, seeing something that was an expensive house or a pool. The universal answer that we got when we asked people, what would they do if they changed um, their lives? They said they wanted to spend more time with their kids when they were young. Right. That, that gave their lives meaning and focus and stuff. And, and that, that was the universal answer. So that's what I've always focused on is spending time with my kids, my family and, and, uh, you're known by your fruit, aren't you, basically, to, to coin a phrase. And so uh, regardless of how long we're here and what we have to go through, uh, I have peace in that, in the respect that I, I have peace with the fact that I've done well with my children, my wife, done the best I could as a dad. And, you know, and, and now I'm with people that believe a lot of things that I believe. And, and uh, uh, during the, the, middle of COVID when everybody was wearing masks and stuff, people here rejected all of those things, all those protocols that, that were everywhere else were not here. And uh, they're in other parts of this country, but they weren't here. They weren't in this village. And so um, my message to people would be to, yeah, get right with your yourself, get right, develop a relationship with whoever you think your creator is, because that's going to be the most important thing of all. It just brings a calmness. And if we do another show, I, I'll, I'll try to explain how different it is living here. I look at pictures now of my house. I had a house worth, you know, a million and a half dollars back home. And I look at it now and I think, how could I ever even have lived there? Like, how could I even live that lifestyle? It's just so meaningless. Whereas here, you know, I, I live with farmers and people that love and love the land. And you've got horses and, and animals around you. And it's just so different. It's, it's the way we were supposed to live yet. There's just no question in my mind. And uh, I'm just so sad that people don't get to experience this. They just, they just don't. Yeah, I think they, uh, they get caught up in the uh, false world matrix. You know, I use the expression uh, plastic and leather, the uh, world of uh, retail and internet shopping and Hollywood and, and the list goes on. But uh, on my Outer Limits show on Rogue News and the uh, discord discussions i've emphasized well is there any solution you you touched on it i said that if if you haven't done it you should have you know could have would have should have started two or three years ago but you you want to get a community you want to surround yourself with like-minded people you want to be in a uh, township where there's cooperation uh bartering is going to be huge you know, growing your own food getting that skill set and canning is is a must it's going to be extremely hard to remain organic the technology is so advanced they want everyone genetically altered and as far because i'm wrapping it up we'll have to have a second and third episode like some of the other guests i'd always already planned on having you back two or three more times in, in the months upcoming months because i there's no way we can get anything done in one hour we need many, many hours. So I'll have you back as a returning guest. But the uh, aspect of, as a research scientist and dealing with field theory, 
and frequency. And I'm an, an inventor of ion plasma generation, many national and international patents. But there's definitely a, a God or an intelligence. We, we know that in our scientific group, the evidence is there. And there's communication that happens uh, through the sun. The electromagnetic energy coming out of the sun has data attached to it in our DNA responds to that data. So there's a communication from heaven or counter space, the higher realm, whatever term you want to use, with our human existence. So there's communication to our being, our DNA. There's communication to animals. There's communication to plants. They all have subsequent DNA that's tuned to receive information coded in the sun's electromagnetic energy. But there's definitely an attempt, and it's already started, of some very bad characters, I think, that are human and non-human. There's an intelligence out there that want to alter uh, genetics. They've already, you know, GMO, they're genetically altering animals uh, with the breeds of pigs, Smithfield, and hogs, and um, the, the Tyson chickens, and the cattle, the beef plants, GMO plants, your Monsantos, DuPonts, and Pioneer Seeds, the list goes on. Now the human um, genetic experimentation, uh, gene-altering technology. If genes, as they succeed in changing DNA, what they're going to do is they're going to jam or limit the signaling coming from the sun, which comes from counter space, from source, God, divine, whatever term you want to use, and they're going to transmit an artificial electromagnetic signaling that they're going to transmit with the altered DNA responding to it, they're going to basically shut us off from God, from source, and they're going to be, become the new God. They're going to be communicating with our DNA and, and commanding life. And this is a fact. It's already been initiated. This is the plan. We know this as scientists. I've been screaming about this. I don't, I don't think it does any good. Uh, warning people, this is where we're at. And to remain organic and connected, to source or God is going to be the greatest challenge in mankind's history. And I can't, Marco, I, because we got to wrap it up when we talk more, I can't get, maybe I, I just need to forget about it. I can't get people to take this seriously. Once in a while, someone will go, that's interesting. I never thought about it. And then all of a sudden they're watching Netflix. So they're in some type of trance. Humanity's too far gone. You can't wake them up. Uh, I think I'm wasting way too much energy trying to, from a scientific perspective, explaining to people what's going on. So I've come to the conclusion I'm going to start distancing myself from social media and my shows and my podcasts. And I'm buttoned down the hatches and I'm focusing on my community that I've developed, the friendships and my technology with water, uh, the grow technologies and the pathogen fighting ion clusters that I've developed and just anchor for the storm that's coming. And I, I don't know uh, what else to do, but uh, you're a little bit further along with me. I mean, you actually relocated Southern hemisphere. You're looking for property. You're in a better area environmentally. It's cleaner than where I am in the Midwest. So you're doing the same thing that, that I'm doing we're just in two different hemispheres now. If we were close together, I know we'd be in the same community. Absolutely. Because we, we're, we're kind of like a brotherhood, especially spiritual brothers, which I think is more important. But yeah, I, I think uh, I'm wasting my time. Can't wake people up. I've been broadcasting for over five years now. Uh, 
that the audience never grows. All I do is get trolls and death threats and heckles. That's the, the scumbags of society. Or I don't know if they're AI that's doing that, but it, I'm, I'm about done. And now I'm batting down the hatches and just focusing on my family and getting ready for, for the storm that's coming. Uh, I'll give you last uh, 30, 60 seconds. Yeah, sure. <clears throat> you know, um, I think that my message to everybody would be um, to be calm. Um, everything around us, everything we look at, turning on any kind of media is panicked about this, panicked about that. And I deal with a lot of people a lot of times. And I said, you need to be calm. Uh, nothing good ever happens by decisions made by panicky people. Just plan out what you're going to do, whatever that is. Be calm about it and methodically go through the motions and just get it done. And I'm a big believer in uh, self-fulfilling prophecy, basically. Uh, I, I'm one of those people that when I think something's going to happen or I plan for something to happen, it basically happens. It, it's basically uh, almost a materialization of my thoughts in some respects. So my wife always says I need to be careful what I wish for because <laughs> it's invariably going to happen. So I, I want everyone to, to stay calm. And if you have any other questions for me or whatever, just contact Jed and uh, we can have some other discussions about other topics or some of the topics I've discussed or some of the history that I've had and what I've yeah, discovered. I've, I've never, uh, one of the, the emails uh, that you can send to contact me is uh, jetblake2011 at gmail.com. So that's J-E-T-B-L-A-K-E 2011 at gmail.com. I don't think I've ever given that out. Uh, Jet Blake is a name that I go under. I have my own YouTube channel, and that's the Outer Limits show. Um, here at TNT's Tim Tupman. But uh, either way, that's probably the best email. I'll see. Hopefully, I get polite emails. Otherwise, I, I don't want to open up the doorway for trolls or tire kickers. I'm just I'm too busy for that. So if you email me, hopefully it's because you're serious and you're genuine about it. So I at least ask uh, for people to be polite. But uh, yeah, I I come across as Mr. Doom and Gloom. I'm I'm a little bit different in thinking than than you are. I'm I'm preparing accordingly and I'm very optimistic and uh, don't think that I'm going to die tomorrow but I am you know because we have private talks on discord I am kind of getting a little bitter and worn out as far as publicly with podcasts and my show with the general public I'm not I'm I'm losing interest there and I'm like I don't get paid to do it and there's a lot of time and energy to develop these shows, to do research. And I'm not, I, I don't think I'm getting a good return on my investment, my investment of time and energy. Jesus said, don't cast pearl before swine. So I think I'm going to kind of wrap up my uh, public appearances. I've done this for five years and I'm like, I'll pass the baton to someone else, you know, let someone else, some other scientists, uh, go for the next five years and replace me. And it's time for me to ride off in the sunset. Now, to me, if I ride off in the sunset, that's a positive thing. I take care of my family. I can 
joy of life like you're enjoying in South America down there. You're definitely connected to nature. I always talk about every day being grounded in nature. You send me beautiful picture. You're more grounded in nature than I am. So you're ahead of me in that game. And I, I think that's the best move you ever made getting out of, I think, major cities. Vancouver's a beautiful area, but it's a big city. I think big cities are toxic. It's just, you know, the the Wi-Fi and the noise and the stress of a big hustle and bustle city. I, th I think people do much better. Uh, I grew up in St. Louis. I got out of uh, St. Louis and I'm in a rural area and I'm much happier in a rural area. So I think you're making all the right moves. One reason is I think you're also getting help at a higher level because you are a good person and so is your family. So I think you're being blessed, which is a good thing. Uh, making right decisions. You do help people. You tell me in private, uh, you're, you're very modest about helping individuals. Well, why would you not be blessed? And, and that's good for you. And that's why I have you on the show. I do look for you as encouragement because, because I, even I get down and depressed and I need that. And you're, you're one of the handful on, on discord and then on, on zoom when we have our discussions where you're always positive and, upbuilding. And I think that came across, people could tell on this ethereal underground interview, they got to know you a little bit better. You're very calm in your delivery. There's a lot of wisdom. You made some good points. They'll pick up on that. And that's why I'd like to have you back on a couple more episodes as we roll into, well, for us, it'll be winter. You're in the Southern hemisphere. So as it approaches summer, but you know, like maybe, uh, end of November, uh, end of December, January, and we'll try to get our schedules to line up to have subsequent shows. Would you be willing to do that? Oh, yeah. You can give me a call anytime. You know where okay. I am. Yep. And uh, we'll, we'll end it there because we're up in about an hour. I'll do a little bit of editing and then air this on the different podcast platforms. So I wanted to take the opportunity to thank Marco for being our guest on episode twenty seven ethereal underground and we look forward to hearing him again and in, in the month or two coming up so everyone uh take care as I always mentioned um, be grounded as much as possible get out in nature and find true spiritual truths so with that we'll end the show